Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. For a long time now, I have wanted to sit down and do an interview with my mom to ask her the big questions about life that we seldom, if ever, really discuss. So for this Mother's Day, I decided that it was time to prioritize this conversation that I've wanted to do for so long, even if it meant that I had to suffer through the perils of recording on Zoom, as opposed to honestly chatting face to face. This episode is a very special and personal one that frankly, I recorded for me. This one's not for social media sharing. It's not for search engine optimization. And it's certainly not to grow an email list. This one is for me. But my hope is that listening to today's conversation with my mom inspires you to reach out to your parents, if of course you are still fortunate enough to have them alive, or instead maybe your siblings or those who helped shape the person that you are today, so you can have an honest conversation with them just like this one. This is the first of a two-part interview where I have created a series of 20 specific questions that I'm calling 20 questions to ask your mom on Mother's Day, which can, of course, be repurposed to suit your own personal needs. These questions, to be very clear, were inspired by a similar exercise from high-performance coach Brendan Bouchard, and I linked to a Facebook post where he provided these questions several years ago. So on that note, without further ado, this is part one of my conversation with my mom on Mother's Day. I am here today with none other than Jane Arnold, which not a coincidence is actually my mother. So mom, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you very much. So the the reason that we are here is uh, I have a series of questions that I want to ask. This is going to be about your background growing up, going to be about your career, be about your family and just kind of be about life in general. Uh, And this is a series of questions that I put together based on a very similar series of questions from uh, another online writer and influencer and coach. His name is Brendan Burchard. So I want to make sure that uh, I give him uh, due credit. These are not questions I made up off 
off the top of my head, but I did modify them a little bit. Um, but what I find uh, very interesting in talking about coming full circle is that as I was growing up, one of the fond and very frequent memories that I have is that I spent a majority of the first 10 years of my life in a car. We did a lot of driving going to different places all over the country, and we often played a game called 20 Questions, where we would come up with some person, place, or thing, or otherwise, and we would spend hours and hours in the car playing 20 Questions. And now we're going to play a game of 20 questions, but it's going to be all about you and your life. Um, so I can learn more about you. And by default, other people that are listening can learn a little bit more about you and life in general. And the hope is that this is going to inspire other people to have uh, similar conversations with their parents. Sounds good to me. Interesting. That's the idea. Uh, should be pretty simple. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how, how far the journey takes us and how long it goes, which will be completely up to you and uh, how deep you want to go with all the stories. So if anybody wants to uh, to listen to the other one that I did with uh, my dad, it aired, I don't remember the exact date, but it would have been uh, around Father's Day of uh, 2020, and the exact same questions. And for anybody that's listening, I will have these questions available to all of my newsletter subscribers. So if you want these questions, you can either just listen um, or you can reach out and I will send them to you. So uh, pretty simple. All right. So we're just going to dive in and we're going to get started. So the first five questions that I have are going to be talking a little bit more about your background and growing up. So the first question is, when were you born? Where were you born? And what memories come to mind when you think about growing up as a young child? Uh, I was born in 1944, and you can do the math very quickly. I was born in Chicago. And uh, the first three years of my life, we lived in Chicago, very near my aunts and uncles. And my grandmother, in fact, lived with us or other relatives, I think, thought, you know, that we lived with my grandmother. But we were very happy about it. And to say the least, I loved it. Uh, I was her full time job uh, from the first minute in the morning until the last tucking in at night. I usually spent right with her all day long, and I loved it. She had a very, very strong Irish probe. She had come to the United States from Ireland at age 19, I think about 1895, and married and had children after that. My mother was uh, her youngest child. That's how that living arrangement happened to come up. But it was a matter of stories and tales from Ireland and being read to and making up poems, uh, something you may be recently familiar with, with the poems I made up for your daughter for her birthday uh, the last couple of years, which has been such so, so enjoyable for me to be able to do that. But that all comes from... Uh, my grandmother, whose name also happened to be Jane. Jane is a family name uh, in that side of the family, and Janes go way, way back, a number of generations, actually. Uh, and I've always loved that name, very proud of that name. In fact, I realized not too long ago that I have three children, and all of you have uh, names with four letters in them, John, Kate, and Zach. And Interesting. Or if, if, if we were going <laughs> to really deep down the rabbit hole, and I'm not going to give this entire secret away to my audience and people that know me personally know this, but technically, Zach is not my four-letter first name. We're not going to talk about what it is, um, but uh, for those that don't know, I actually go by my middle name, but my first name is also four letters. So funny enough, I don't, exactly I don't know if that's right. a coincidence or not. But Nope, you're, you're exactly right. Well, I was just about to tell you that, told you that yes, yes. You are a member of our family by blood. It's the four letters that go with it. So you have two four-letter names. So that's really quite distinguished. 
when I was three years old, my father was transferred to the Milwaukee area. And I, I remember moving day very vividly because I took raw bacon, which was one of my favorite snacks that I don't think anybody knew about. It was the meat that was so tasty and hid in the bottom huge cabinet of uh, our home. And for quite a long time, in fact, nobody could find me because the moving men were moving in and out from all the rooms of the house. And my mother was getting increasingly upset and hysterical. And my grandmother was, a, it was a sort of a big deal. And I just sat there munching on the bacon and they finally found me, dragged me out to the car, literally uh, handed me my dolly, closed the door and off we drove to Milwaukee. Um, I liked Chicago better, let's just say that. Uh, but it's turned out to be a very nice life and turned out that it turned to be, for me, uh, a life with your dad and with you and uh, with your brother and your sister and all the surrounding relatives. So, although I still like raw bacon. I was going to say, here we are only five minutes into the interview and I've already learned something about you I didn't know my whole life. I knew you loved bacon. I did not, however, know that you liked raw bacon. So that uh, potentially explains a lot. <laughs> well, it's really it's really those little chunks of meat that are delicious, but uh, I haven't had any in a very long time. But I had a handful. I mean, I literally grabbed a handful and in the cabinet was seems huge even in my memory now and they did overlook it they didn't realize i did that quite often so i didn't know uh, that you were such almost, a pioneer for the for the ketogenic diet so yeah, you'd uh, you'd be a, you'd be a pioneer in the crossfit community with uh, with eating your your raw meats they'd appreciate that well my gosh i never thought of that that's like a whole new life it is there's even a thing called the carnivore diet night where the now where the only thing you eat is meat that's it I just ordered a diet like that for my cat. So there you go. You were a trendsetter many, many, many decades ago. Well, and it's never stopped. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the second question on our questionnaire, continuing uh, to discuss this idea of background and growing up. Um, and as you know, as a bit of an aside, uh, one of the reasons I love to do this podcast and talk to other people is I'm obsessed with understanding how people are wired and why they behave the way that they do and why they make the choices that they do and how they're able to achieve the things that they do. And uh, so this is a really cool question for that specifically. <laughs> which is what are the most formative memories or experiences that you had as either a child or a teenager that you believe led you to the person that you have become today? Uh, two that are related, very closely related. And that is, was the behavior, uh, I guess that's the right word, the, the values, the behavior, the interest in other people, the caring for other people that were shown by my mother and father, which were very different, which were very different. I, I don't exactly know why, and because they both died so young, and I was so young when they died, I never got the stories from there. There are many, many missing stories in my life because of that. Uh, but my father cared deeply for people. Uh, he was a marvelous, marvelous father. Uh, he loved my mother. He certainly loved us. Uh, he concentrated on work, but was very active, for instance, all but just he made it up for our church to a young person's group, a youth fellowship, I believe it was called, which took him away from our home on Sunday nights. And he was very all teenagers, if you can imagine, uh, all kinds of things from dances to hay rides to quizzes to just sitting down and chatting together. 
uh, and flip that over just a little bit. And you would see my mother sitting in the living room, not saying much to him, but talking to me and my sister about how he was gone and how that was just a shame. and He should be home with us and very strong values and interests and things and stuff. And as a result, my sister and I have more, more stuff uh, to get rid of as our age uh, increases than I think even that young woman who wrote that book would even dream of. But she was very very interested in being the best looking and she was very beautiful uh the most beautifully dressed going to the fanciest places in other words their values and their interests were very diverse but they loved each other very deeply they were married a very long time before these illnesses took them Uh, at least it seemed like a long time i guess the they celebrated their 27th wedding anniversary, which is not a very long time uh, now, or maybe even then. Uh, and it had a strange effect on me, and I think on my sister. She and I are very diverse. Uh, I was just crazy about my father and had questions for my mother, which he brushed off about things like this as I noticed them. Uh, and I would say our relationship was okay but not great. And I have tried, tried. (laughs) You'd be a good one to tell me sometime, not on the radio, how successful I've been in trying to be either a mix of those two or leaning more to my father's side. Uh, But even their own life experiences, she was the youngest of four children by several years uh, and was very spoiled. Her older brother, in fact, her oldest brother uh, put her through Northwestern University because he thought she was way too smart to go only to a teacher's college to become a teacher. Uh, so I think her family had a lot to do with her values, uh, as did my father's uh, kind of negative, long story way. But they were, as I think about it now, so such vastly different people. The one thing they had in common was that they loved each other so deeply. And we saw, we also saw that. And that we've tried, both of us, my sister and I both, you know, to put that kind of love into our families and maybe get, you know, lose some of the other behaviors and things that we saw and experienced. Well, uh, the the audience may have picked up on this already, but just to, to kind of make it clear, um, I never met your parents because they both passed away before you even had uh, my oldest brother, John, correct? So even he's never met yes. your parents, right? Yes. And they, they both uh, passed away roughly the same time. Wasn't it fairly close to each other? Two years apart. And how old were you? I was 20 when my father died and just barely 22 by a matter of two weeks when my mother died and she died six weeks uh, short of my first child being born. And that would be your brother. Yeah. And how old were they? Uh, They were both 58. Both 58. Wow. That's interesting. And uh, from what I remember, both cancer. Yes. Uh, My father had Hodgkin's disease, uh, which is a blood cancer. And my mother died of colon cancer. My, my theory has always been that she really died of a broken heart, that the stress of his illness and then finally of losing him uh, just overwhelmed her. He was sick for seven years, which is a long time with two young teenagers, and, uh, and that she just simply died of a broken heart. And I think I really think that in many ways, however psychologists or psychiatrists would put it, 
uh, that they were so close that, I mean, her life just was abbreviated. Boom. She had these two lovely young girls with their acne and braces and glasses and all of the you know, concerns that come with that. And I think she just gave up. Well, I would uh, I would make an uh, make an assumption, perhaps, but I feel like an educated assumption, having uh, grown up with you for essentially my entire life, from the moment I was born, and frankly, my nine months before I was born, um, mm-hmm. that perhaps the most formative experience that you have for who you are now is having lost them so early, because I don't know anybody that is more fiercely independent than you. (laughs) Nobody on the planet have I ever met that's as fiercely independent as you are. And I will guess there's (laughs) probably a connection there. Oh, I think there's very definitely a connection there. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a secret. I don't think I've ever told anyone this before, but I was going to the hospital uh, one Saturday morning and I was pretty pregnant by then uh, to see my mother. In fact, we uh, removed her from one hospital and took her to the university hospital, uh, Wisconsin University Hospital in Madison. I think that was the day we were moving her. And I got to her close to her room and she was talking to somebody and it could have been, you know, anybody, but it wasn't. She was talking out loud to herself. And what she said was, I've waited all these years to do the things that I wanted to do. And for John and me, my father and her, uh, to do the things we have always wanted to do. And now neither of us will ever do those things. And we will never do those things together. And that was, I think, the single most important formative thing I ever heard about living your life. Those are those are certainly important words to live by. And uh, even though you've never told me that story, I would say that your behavior has exhibited that value where if it's something you just want to do, you're going to do it. You don't care if you upset people. You don't care if it's going to you know, get in the way of somebody's schedule. If it's something that you want to do, you're going to do it. And I think that uh, a lot of that in uh, a lot of ways is probably rubbed off on me where um, I, I think that I, I know this is one thing I certainly don't get from my father because this is where he and I are very different where the two of you are very different. Um, But I've said on the podcast many times talking about um, the process of collaboration and working on projects and just taking a job. I know very, very clearly that I am great at working with people. I am horrible at working for people. I'm pretty sure I inherited that from you. Probably. I did not inherit it from dad. Um, nope. one, of the, one of the things that I talk about on the program all the time, and I know that you follow the, the podcast and you probably even listened to this uh, interview and read the book, but it's the one by Gretchen Rubin all about the four tendencies. Um, and uh-huh. it's something that I feel is a really important framework to better understand relationships and what's a good fit as far as just working with people, the right jobs. And there are the, the four tendencies of the upholder, the obliger, the questioner, and the rebel. And you fall 117% firm in one of those categories. And I would say that you are definitely the rebel. Would you agree? Oh, yes, I would. Yes. I've never met anybody more in the rebel category than you. And I inherited some of that. And I have a lot of the a questioner in me, whereas I'm sure um, you can talk about a little bit later. Um, probably, I would assume lots of memories of me always questioning things. And if something didn't make sense, me fighting back, none of that has really changed. I've gotten better at doing it more judiciously, but none of that has really changed. I think that stuff sticks with you your whole life, no matter how hard you try if you even bother to try, but try or soften it or uh, change things for different kinds of people, types of people, their needs, how related they are to you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But yes, and and I I really do believe uh, in my own heart 
that it was hearing that. It was so clear. I mean, we were standing probably not 10 feet apart, but she couldn't see me. She was back behind a wall, and I backed up a little bit when I realized who she was talking to, which was herself, uh, and out loud. And I understood the import, really, for the first time, all wrapped up with my own pregnancy and her illness and traveling and all of that, uh, what that all really meant to her. I knew what it meant to me. I knew what it meant to my sister, you know, all the relatives, aunts and uncles, her friends. But I don't think, when I was only 21, uh, that I had ever thought what that meant to her and what that meant that her life was being truncated uh, way before its time, that my dad's had been, and that more importantly to her, their life together had been truncated in such a terrible way. Well, there are, uh, there are a lot of, lot of things that I think a lot of people fear, myself included, but the fear that drives me more than any other fear is very, very similar to that, which is getting to that point in my life where I'm regretting all of the things that I wanted to do, but because of fear, I chose not to, which is why I will often make the, the scarier choice and do what some might assume is kind of the, the crazy option and the less stable one and there's less security. Um, but whatever that thing is that I'm afraid of trying next, I'm less afraid of it than regretting having not done it. Like, I can't even imagine if I'd said three or four years ago, you know, it would be awesome to get on the show American Ninja Warrior. It just sounds really hard and I'm afraid that it would get in the way of my job and it's gonna be a lot of work and I don't know what it's gonna do with the family. So it sounds like it would be fun, but it's also kind of scary and I'm not gonna do it. So I can't imagine where I'd be right now had I chosen not to pursue that out of fear, given everything that pursuing a goal like that has given me and all of the other goals that I want to pursue in the future. And again, like I said, I think that this has just kind of been burned in my brain that this is uh, just one of the, the ways that I filter my entire life, knowing that I need to, to make the choice so that I don't regret having not made it later. But I've never heard that story until now. So it's really interesting how just through learned behavior and other conversations that um, that makes complete and perfect sense. And I never heard that story until literally today. Nobody has. Nobody has. I never told anybody, even my own sister, who you know, my, who wasn't there, but certainly could have been that's just but it was I, mean, I that was literally repeating pretty much word for word exactly what she said and of course I waited a little while walked in her room you know hi mom are you ready to go can I help you pack and just like I had never heard it and hmm. Well, it only took 41 years and a microphone to get the good stories out of you. So that's good to know. I'll remember that the next time I want to have a good chat. I'll make sure it's on the record so I get the good stuff. <laughs> My sincerest apologies for the interruption. But if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo Driven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found 
bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Um, all right. Well, we've kind of, uh, we've gone a little bit off the beaten path, but uh, in the, the best ways possible, but going back to our more formal questionnaire, um, I think you've already answered this one. I'm just going to put it out there just so people know this is one of the questions, but you pretty much already answered this one, which is what is the most important lesson that you learned from your mom? I would guess this That's is probably it. the one, right? So definitely. without you knowing it, you already answered my next question on my list, but I don't think you've answered the follow-up, which is what's the most important lesson that you learned from your dad? Oh gosh, he was just a, he was just a marvelous man. Uh, your daughter just had a birthday party last night and had my father been there, he would have been pretending to stumble downstairs. He would have gotten himself a, uh, some kind of clown mask. Uh, just to, you know, kind of scare the little girls, nine-year-old, eight and nine-year-old girls. Uh, he'd be leading them in song at some point and teaching them songs like Daisy, Daisy, give me, your, you know, that kind of mirrors. He, don't, he loved that because kids could never sing it. And then when they all found out what that meant, they were just so thrilled to have this song. Uh, so he, he lived uh, not the least bit like freely or irresponsibly, but he had this sense of humor that would come out at the strangest times, like birthday parties and hearing this awful stumbling noise coming down the stairs and everyone, oh, oh Mr. Sutton, Mr. Sutton, are you all right? And there he'd be sitting there with this great big grin on his face and a crooked hat on his head. And yes, indeed he would. So he kind of combined it all. He was extremely intelligent uh, very, very popular. So I said, deeply caring about people. Uh, but for him, I guess one of the messages I got loud and clear was that life is to be fun. Have fun. He would always say, we'd go out the door and be after, be home on time, you know, stay away from that boy, you know, good people. In those, in those years, there weren't probably, I guess, so many dangers, but was probably perceived as heavy dangers if you were a parent of two teenage girls. But uh, life was supposed to be fun. And that whole emphasis my mother had, on, you know, pink and green living rooms, because that was what they were supposed to be. 
was just about when the responsibilities could be put aside for a moment, just have fun. Just have fun. Well, I would certainly say that that, that has come across uh, more than once as well. Again, not knowing that story at all, but um, certainly makes sense. And if we're looking at the the blend of the the influence that I would have gotten from dad versus you, that's an area of very stark contrast, as I'm sure you would agree, where um, as, as if somebody goes back and listens to the interview that I did with him for his upbringing and very much for mine, it was always about hard work and discipline and following through and doing your best and I don't think that it's a coincidence that I ended up being the valedictorian of high school. Um, I don't think that's because I was, frankly, the, the most intelligent. It just kind of wasn't an option. It just is the way that it was going to be, and that just was what it was. And I know that there were a lot of times that – I wouldn't say that you were against that because you're – you have clearly also been very successful and we're always very supportive. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, but you, you got to step away and have a little bit of fun and not work too hard, too. And I think that I've um, I've been working my entire life to find what is the middle ground between those two things, because my default mode is work 24 seven, achieve, achieve, achieve. Um, but there's also the voice in my head that says it can't come at the expense of the people around me or the the quality of life doing it. And I would say that a lot of that voice probably is coming from you. Well, I think if I just may butt in for a moment, there was a there was a period in your life where what? Well, I'll just say it. Uh, these people are all fans of yours. You were suspended from a cup for a couple of days when you were in high school. Not only were technically you eighth grade, by the way, eighth grade. Oh, okay, even younger. And the person who suspended you was the principal of, of the middle school or junior high, who coincidentally happened to be your father. Yeah, funny how that works. Fact, yes, isn't that funny how that works? Who called me and uh, said, you have to come and pick up Zach right now. Well, I was busy. I said, why? Are you, is he sick? You know, all the stuff that was. No, no, he said, I, I just suspended him for, and he had the reason and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of fought back, and I finally realized I was fighting a losing battle, and you were probably sitting there, you know, waiting for your loving and heartbroken and um, your mother to pick you up. Well, I got thinking about it, that you were going to be around for three days, and I thought, good grief, we can go to the movies, we can go shopping, we can do, you know, all these cool things during the week. And as I remembered, at least we did some of those things, did we not, while you were suspended? We did, yes, uh, it was basically a, a nice three-day vacation from school. Exactly, and it, that exactly was what I wanted. I wanted to spend that time with you and enjoy every single minute of it. It was, it was a gift. Those three days were a gift. You had not set the building on fire. Uh, you had not, you know, let the air out of everybody's tires as far as I was concerned. You know, it was fine. He had to do it for three days because he was the principal, couldn't let you off easy. He has never said that. That was my interpretation. But it was my interpretation. And since I was the person with the locks and the keys, we were going to have fun. Just like my father. Just that I didn't even realize that. And we did. And it's been three wonderful I have a memory of three just great days, like gifts out of nowhere. 
Yes. I mean, and, and like you said, uh, had I done something that was a lot more severe to be concerned about, it'd be different, oh, totally but it was, it, it, it all, it's basically chalked up to boys will be boys in eighth grade and, you know, stupid skirmish that I got into and we both got suspended and it was what it was. But I, I'm with you that to this day, had it been anybody else, I think the two kids would have gotten off with a warning, but he needed to make it very clear that nobody gets away with anything, especially my son. So I think that it was a more severe punishment than somebody else would have gotten, which again was all about the discipline and, you know, you do what you're told. And I think that it was very much making uh, making an example. And um, at the end of the day, it's made for a good story for many years now. Well, it has. And uh, he hates it every time I tell it. <laughs> <laughs> you see that care a lot about that. <laughs> yes. Well, again, goes back to the, the rebel tendency of, you know, as long as I'm having I, fun, I don't really care what other people think. Yeah, yeah, well, well, that's true, but don't get suspended. Again, yes. So moving on to the uh, the next formal question. Um, it's an extension again of uh, your parents, but let's say that your parents were around today and they would have the opportunity to meet my kids, Elliot and Evelyn. What would they want to share with them? Oh, first of all, they would be so badly in love with those two kids. Uh, I mean, we all are. But I just think, in fact, I said it to your dad not too long ago. I said, it's what a pity that uh, my parents never got to know the kids and you know how fortunate uh, your wife's parents are. Two lovely, lovely people and love those kids like crazy and spend as much time with them as they could and how wonderful that is that they have at least two grandparents. Uh, and that's fine. We're just very fortunate about that. Good choices there, dear. But they would, they would be absolutely crazy about those kids. And their their interests would be very similar in some ways. And of course, technologically totally diverse, but able to be learned in other ways. But just watch them grow up and see them be independent. And the gift that I think you and your wife are giving the kids is the freedom and support to follow the things that they love and not be forced into doing things for political reasons or social reasons or society, you know, pressuring them. And they, I'm sure that uh, Evelyn has never been told that she was supposed to grow up and be the prom queen if there are still such things as prom queens. Well, that's what my sister and I were told. And, uh, you know, we just chuckled behind the scenes looking at each other that that was never going to happen. But that was the whole idea. So that kind of freedom is exactly the kind of thing my father would have given them. Let's put it that way. I had not thought about that till right now. Uh, but I see those gifts that I never thought about. You knew nothing about until now, uh, given them so openly and with so much love. And the same thing would have been true for you that you would have had the same, like your, your, your other grandfather, your dad's father, what a marvelous man he was and how he would have loved them. And they love him back in return. Um, and he, I have letters that he wrote us and uh, he said that all the time about your older cousin, in fact, Samantha, uh, she was the one little kid growing up in the middle of all this. And she did know she did know her grandfather, uh, Arnold, and he would say, and give all my love to my precious little girlfriend. 
And they were just little, he'd say, he said, I'm totally in love with that little girl. And she'd be just, oh, grandpa, 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 grandpa. And that would have been a great love affair. And it would have been the same with uh, Elliot and with Evelyn. Totally different interests, very different personalities. Uh, He just would have loved the whole thing. Just loved it. Those gifts go way back. And the loss of those gifts go way back, too. Yep. Well, uh, I would say that you're you're doing your best and then some to impart a lot of those uh, same ideals and uh, and values on them, just as you did me. And um, not having them uh, around, it, it is what it is. But uh, you know, like I said, I never even had a chance to meet them. And uh, both of uh, my dad's parents, I think, passed away by the time I was eight, nine. I can't remember, but um, I, I didn't have I didn't have grandparents for that long. And I'm glad to see that, um, you know, Elliot and Evelyn are, have two full sets of healthy grandparents um, and have their entire lives. And, uh, you know, obviously we hope that that continues. So, yeah. So now we're going to make a little bit of a transition. Like I said, these uh, questions are in kind of four different groups. First group of five is a little bit more about background. Now this is going to be a little bit more about you and career. So, what path did you begin on in life when you first became an adult, and why? A path toward a career. There was one thing in my life I wanted to be, and always wanted to be, to this very very day, uh, and that was to be a lawyer. And that was, believe it or not, because I absolutely fell in love with the Constitution in seventh or eighth grade civics class. Now, talk, think about that. Uh, for a little girl in seventh grade uh, to fall in love with the Constitution. But I was walking home one day and I knew immediately that was what I wanted. Uh, And I sort of danced and skipped all the way home because it was just so clear that that was it. That was it. Just like when I met your dad, I looked I looked him in the looked him in the face and fell in love with him, and that was that. And that's what happened with the law. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. I had two little kids. You know, all the babysitters were gone. I mean, most people rely on their parents. Well, hello. Uh, my sister had moved out of the state by then and you know, uh, was, was married. Uh, so I listened to uh, Elizabeth Warren's story very, very carefully about that's where she was at one point in her life. But she called her aunt and she was saying, you know, she was sad because she couldn't go to law school and she couldn't do this and she couldn't do that. Uh, because she had nobody either. And her aunt said, well, I can't be there tomorrow, but I can be there Thursday. And she came Thursday and she stayed with them, with Elizabeth. And all the time those children were growing up and for many years after that. And I heard that story on television uh, day before yesterday, I believe. Again, I know that story very well. I lived it and just from a part about the aunt. And I said to your dad, Boy, that would have made all the difference in my life if I had just had somebody to take care of those kids that I trusted and loved. And so what a difference it would have made. So my pattern kind of got scattered. (laughs) My mother had always said, be a teacher, you get your summers off. Well, that did sound very good to me. Uh, I thought, well, what the heck, you know, I'll get a teaching degree. Plus, I had so many scattered credits, I'd still be there trying to finish it all. Uh, So I did. And that's that's what I knew. And although I was pretty sure I didn't really want to do that, I was very fortunate. I got a call from a local school district and they had received a large grant for three years for a project writing and developing 
programs for parents of preschool children. It was actually called Project Happy, H-A-P-P-E. And would I be interested in coming in for an interview? Well, what the heck? You know, I wasn't going to law school, so I might as well go to Project Happy. And I got the job and got started in one line that way. And over uh, in some meetings, I found out there were people who were interested in doing more work for gifted and talented children. Well, I had to. And it's very evident in your case, because these your listeners know you well, uh, and certainly true in your sister's case for a whole bevy of reasons in her life as well. And I thought, well, I have two gifted kids. I'm very concerned about their education. And I raised my hand and said, well, I'd like to go to that meeting. Well, about two years later, I was president of the state group that I had actually helped to form along with four or five other people. And it was an extremely important time in my life, trying to get things done, which are still not done in Wisconsin uh, for gifted students. But look at you, I mean, look at you, look at your sister, look at your kids, you know, worked out for it worked out for us but not without some work and some pain and talk about uh being a little bit of a rebel comes in very handy in a time like that so that was fine and then i decided you know yeah that was great and by then you were on the way and i thought well i think i'm going to try something different and that was staying home with you and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. We'd go to the park. Remember the Red Slide Park and the Pushing Boy Park and all of the things that we did. Uh, and, of course, the time came when you had to go to school. And I thought, well, I might as well go back to work. And I saw an ad in the paper. And one of the banks in the state was looking for someone to lead their training program. I thought, huh. You know, I had, we had a checking account. We had a mortgage. And I think that might have been my total experience in banking. But I wrote a very good letter, got called in for an interview, had been in an auto accident about two days before and really worked, walked very poorly because I, my, my ankles had been injured. And I thought going up in the elevator, oh, Lord, they're going to think, you know, that I'm a damaged person and now they're going to have to hire me. And Well, this, this is going to be embarrassing. How am I going to explain this? They won't even ask, of course, because they do. At any rate, uh, it, it all worked out. So they hired me and I ended up, quote unquote, in banking for almost 10 years. Absolutely loved it. It was a time when the whole world was changing. Bankers were supposed to be affable. And I was supposed to teach them to be that way. Well, I had a blast. I just loved it. Uh, so then we moved, moved up to the woods uh, where we are still. And that, that was a whole different experience that led me in many directions. Uh, taught me quite a lot, as a matter of fact, including how to deliver lambs, which is just not to the store, but to their mothers. We have two new ones now, as a matter of fact. Uh, and so that's kind of where my very sloppy career has led back and forth. But and I was in the midst in the midst of all of this, I was like my ankle was injured in an automobile accident while I was on my way to mail my application to law school at the University of Wisconsin and not taking it as a, as a you know omen of things that might not come. I was accepted to law school. And I went to my boss and she got up and slammed this huge door to her office. She said, why would you want to do that? 
So you're just going to have to read a lot of hard books and you're going to lose three years around here. So we can make that work if you want. But she said, we'll just give you the first of your promotions and we'll pay you a lot more money. And she said, it'll be fun. And I thought, well, yeah, that's better than having to move to Madison and blah, 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 blah. And it all turned out to be true. They gave me promotions. They, you know, helped me make a little more money. Uh, it was very interesting, and I'm still not a lawyer, but if I had a chance to do it today, I would. Well, it certainly doesn't surprise me that you have a, an interest in constitutional law or the Constitution, because um, even though we're uh, we're going to be releasing this audio only, uh, if somebody were looking at the, the picture right now, uh, they would see what's probably the most iconic memory that I will have of growing up, which is entire rooms that are nothing but bookshelves of books. As a matter <laughs> of fact, the first 10 years of my life, my bedroom was a library before. And I remember one of the things I used to get so upset about was that I could and put posters up in my room because my entire room was nothing but bookshelves of books, literally floor to ceiling. I was surrounded by thousands of books. To this day, none of that has changed. So it doesn't surprise me that, uh, especially given that most of your books now are about either law or the Civil War or history or civic, you know, minded uh, topics. That certainly doesn't surprise me. But it's uh, it's interesting that you ended up going the, the teaching route because um, uh, this is something that you may have told me, but I know that dad has told me more than once. Once, especially when I was going to um, go out to Hollywood and be a big shot and leave the farm and all this and that, um, he had said to me, you realize that you are a teacher and you will always be a teacher and the time will come when you choose to make the transition to not doing what you do to becoming a teacher. <laughs> are you crazy? I'll never be a teacher. I would never do that. <laughs> and now here I am. Um, and, you know, obviously a very different form of it. Like I don't have a certified teaching degree and I'm not teaching ninth grade science or anything like that. Um, but I would say that I've, I have found a unique and 21st century way to become a teacher for a living. And largely that's because of the, the influence of nothing but teaching at the dinner table 24-7 for my entire life. Yep, that's pretty well true. And when I go back and look at at least my mother's family, pretty much that was the story. I mean, that, that's who they were. My grandfather on that side of the family, that uh, I never met him either. Um, he was an ordained uh, in Ireland. He was ordained as the Methodist minister who are, of course, teaching. That's what they do. Uh, my grandmother, who was I was not the only grandchild. I was the only grandchild fortunate enough to live her, live with her as a young child. Uh, but the rest of them heard the same stories, the same poems, the, all the things that she talked about, uh, the history of Ireland and the people and everything. And almost all my aunts and uncles, except the two who were dentists, uh, were teachers, teachers and one librarian uh, in the group, which is the same thing. And she would have loved your room, by the way. Hmm. I'm sure she would have. <laughs> and given all of the, the teachers on uh, dad's side as well, um, uh, it's certainly no surprise that this is a, a transition that I decided to make, not completely realizing that that's what I was doing at the time. And it's certainly no coincidence that I married a teacher. That's very absolutely right. You're, well, it's the family business. It is, yeah. exactly. Some yeah, people, they've got all doctors, lawyers, dentists, whatever it is, and we're just uh, just a giant gaggle of teachers. So mm -hmm. I, I it, it's funny because I say on the podcast, and now it's, it's making even more sense, but I say this to my coaching students as well. I don't know how to not mentor. 
it's like, I can't even not do it if I try it. So if I have somebody I'm working with that I hire that's on my team or that I hire as an assistant, I don't know how to not mentor them and just have them just go about and do their job and go home. Um, and I think that just comes from being exposed to that 24 seven, my entire life, that that's just what you do. So. Mm-hmm. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Um, I think you've probably answered the next two questions already. But again, for the sake of anybody listening that uh, is keeping track and wants to do the same exercise, uh, the next question uh, is far off the beaten path of where we started, which is what career path or paths have you followed since your first one? You've clearly covered that and then some. Um, And I think you are already covered. And if uh, we haven't, you can go a little bit deeper into it. But the next question is, what do you love or did you love the most about your career? And I think think you covered that, but is there anything else that you'd want to add before we move on to the next one? Oh, the people, the people that I met. I was very, again, very, very fortunate uh, that it was this big transition time in the industry of banking uh, because they really didn't know much about what to do with me. One of the things that I was good at, uh, actually very good at, was public speaking and taking difficult and complex topics like, for instance, Wisconsin's marital property law, which is similar to the uh, property law, for instance, in California, Uh, and one of the gigantic tax laws that went through while I was in the bank, and uh, uh, the future of employee benefits, talk about excitement. Uh, And they'd hand it to me and they'd say, here, this is what we're going to do. We're going to invite all of our you know, upscale customers and you're going to explain this and you're going to answer questions. Well, the first time it about scared me to death for about five minutes and I thought, well, I can do that. And I did. And it was very successful. And I had a wonderful time with these people. The tax law wasn't quite as exciting, but the, tax, the questions were very exciting and it was very interesting. Um, And the same was true with, uh, believe it or not, the future of employee benefits, which turned out to be to me. These are exciting to me to be the most interesting of them all. And I was pretty 
I look back now on what I talked about, and I was pretty on topic about the future and what was coming, which was also nice. But the people, I ended up in the uh, working mostly with the people at the highest level in the bank. And in fact, once for another talk I was giving, I picked out uh, maybe 20 of the people I thought were the most gifted, and I actually sent them uh, a questionnaire about being gifted and what was it like to grow up gifted and what was it like, you know, in their careers and so forth, which of course caused a little bit of a stir in the bank, talk about being a rebel uh, and have lots of very interesting conversations and lots of the ideas I had had about how these people grew up and what they felt, uh, how, how, they, how it worked for them. Uh, so I was in a position through no gifts of my own they just hired me because they thought they needed somebody and they got one that's for sure uh and it was just it was marvelous absolutely marvelous when we came up here to the north woods uh that all just disappeared within a year uh and that was very difficult to lose to lose all of that but i I find this surprising and ironic because i wouldn't have even guessed that And the reason I say that, and it's another area that I see so much similarity, is that you immediately knew the answer was the people. And if I think about what I enjoy doing and the fact that I – I would guess that just through osmosis, I must have either inherited this from you or otherwise, but I didn't – it's not like you never consciously taught me this, but I too am also a fairly natural public speaker. But listening to both of us talk about it and the fact that I now specialize in helping people build their network and build relationships and pursue the work that they want, you would just assume that you and I are people persons. And it couldn't be any further from the truth because there's only two people on the planet that I know that are more introverted than me. And that would be my brother and you. Exactly. Which I find so ironic given you immediately went to it was working with the people that was the most rewarding part of the process. Because, man, the three of us together, we are as introverted and antisocial as you can possibly get. I would say – Kate, maybe not quite so much. She's got a little bit more extroversion in her. She's got some of it. But um, you look up introvert family in the dictionary and there's our family picture. Yep. Yep. That's absolutely true. And we have talked about this and your brother John and I have talked about this, too. I mean, the 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 whole COVID thing of stay home. Oh, my God, that's what I've been listening to. I'm trying to hear my entire life. You know, stay home. Blah, 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 blah. You know, we don't have to get on buses or airplanes except to go see you. Uh, all of these things, just stay put and kind of do what you want because you're fortunate enough to be able to do that. And this, you know, losing all this all of a sudden and all these happy looking people in their swimming suits and stuff running around. And I'm thinking, oh, dear God, protect me from that. Not that they're bad people or there's anything wrong with that. They're not. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not for me. I'm having the exact same experience right now. And to to preface it, (laughs) I wouldn't wish everything that's happened on the world ever again. And I'm glad that people are going back to work and we're able to, to have the freedoms to go out to grab food again or whatever it might be. But there's a big part of me that's like, God, I miss there not being any traffic and never having to come up with an excuse to not go to some event or meet with somebody or whatever. Like it was, it was nice. Just from a from a very selfish and personal perspective, I very much enjoyed 
the uh, the solitude and nothing going on whatsoever and just finding a way to to manage from home and i'm already finding myself more exhausted from now having to, to deal with more of the the social things and traveling around more and like as uh as we'll uh, we'll give away you and i have our our sunday conversations every sunday when i drive back from my my sunday ninja workouts and those mm-hmm. conversations have gotten a lot longer which is a good thing but it's also because i'm stuck in traffic a lot more so there's <laughs> there's there's a part of me that uh, that kind of misses uh, some of the perks of the pandemic. And I know that I'm not alone and I'm probably getting a lot of very furious head nods um, from listeners because I think a lot of them uh, probably follow me because I too am a creative introvert and just kind of want to do my thing and be left alone. And uh, there were certain parts of the pandemic that were kind of relaxing and kind of a, a reboot. So my hope is that at some point we can find a middle ground. And I think that we're rushing back to quote unquote what normal was beforehand without really rethinking how we want to redefine that term. But anyway, that's a whole nother soapbox that I didn't bring into the room today. Um, so I'm not going to get on it. But going back to, to these questions, I think, again, you've maybe alluded to this one, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into it because I think it's important for anybody to be able to answer this question of themselves. So this is going to be a lesson for not just the, the two of us, but I think for anybody else listening. And it's a hard question to answer about yourself. But for you, I don't think it's going to be hard. For other people, it can be difficult. What makes you successful or what made you successful at what you do? What are the, the core things about you that made you successful? I think the first was, believe it or not, my sense of humor. It's like they talk about gamers, I think, in sports, you know, the so someone can scout well. I think our own Aaron Rodgers is probably an example of that. Uh, he, when he gets on the field, he plays football, whether he likes it or likes the Packers or anything. He does his job, I think, because he probably loves doing that job. So he's a, he's a gamer. And I was in the sense that I could get up and talk to anybody, uh, talk about a subject, hopefully something I knew something about, uh, and make it interesting and humorous. As I said, believe it or not, those topics were not humorous, any one of them. And, and there were many others. Uh, so my sense of humor, I think, was her one. And the other was genuinely enjoying the conversations with individuals, which is what I meant about the people in that group. I didn't mean, you know, 13,000 people who cared. I meant the people I was fortunate enough to be involved with 99.9% of the time who were very open. Uh, There was very little political stuff because we were just a group within the great big group. And when we were together, we were free to do that. And you and I have spent many years talking about peer groups, finding your peer group and being comfortable. And it's very difficult depending on, you know, what strengths you have and what weaknesses, either literal or figurative. Uh, And in that group, I found my peer group. It's the only one I've ever found. But it was wonderful. As long as it lasted, it was absolutely wonderful. So that made a difference. But I think my uh, my own my sense of humor even found that peer group for me. So I think that was that was the thing. I was once asked by our band director when I was in high school to give uh, the, the narration of the program they were giving of our band trip to New York City for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Where, by the way, I was asked to follow to carry uh, the United States flag, the good old uh, red, white, and blue. And I thought that was a great honor. 
but uh, the joke was on me. They gave that to the person who really couldn't do anything else, couldn't play an instrument uh, well enough to, you know, really toot or hear anything or carry a, a drum, uh, and certainly not throw wooden rifles around in the air uh, coming down, you know, the streets in New York City. So I got to carry the American flag in that. But I was asked then to do this narration. I said, well, where's the script? And the director said, we don't have one. He said, with you, we don't need one. He said, you'll get up there and the first slide will come up. And he said, you're going to say something. It's going to be wonderful. Everybody's going to laugh and applaud. And we'll have a couple hours. It'll be terrific. And I did. And it was. And my mother sat there like this, pretty much my uh, her hand over her eyes, uh, pretty much the whole time, uh, worried that I might, you know, say or do something to my father was just, <laughs> all of that loving so that was a gift that has always given me more than I could even imagine ever in my life still does as a matter of fact I recommend a sense of humor yes sense of humor but I also think the ability uh th this is a big one that you've touched on and I think I want to extract a little bit more because um I think it's if I could find one, in, I've spent years trying to figure this out, but what is it that makes me successful at what I do and being able to tell that story succinctly so I can attract other people that either need that service or that are similar to find a peer group. And I think what I have discovered is probably something that comes from you based on what you said about taking these complex topics and being able to extemporaneously speak about topics and make it sound natural and conversational and kind of involve more people. Um, I would say that the skill I have comes from you to take something very, very complex and break it down into very simple, understandable pieces. And again, it's not like you sat me down and tutored me on how to do that. It's just one of those things that either happens genetically or happens via osmosis. Um, but I don't think it's any surprise that that's why I gravitated towards being an editor, because being an editor, you take all of this complex information that's seemingly random and you have to distill it down to the essence of whatever that story is. And you were doing the same thing, but with either um, very difficult concepts or you were doing it with people. And now that's what I do. Um, it was when I had come to the realization fairly recently, um, I was terrified of making this career transition because I'm thinking I have to start all over. I can't use all of the, the background and the skills that I have as an editor and the technology and the workflow. Like I'm starting from zero. And then I realized, no, I'm not. I can still use my ability to, to break down something complex to simplify it. Only the difference is instead of editing a video material together. I'm helping people edit their own stories together, listening to all the different parts of their story and helping them break it down and figure out what is it that you want your story to be next. And again, it sounds like a lot of that probably comes from a combination of learning how to be a teacher and learning how to break things down from complex to simple with a little bit of a sense of humor. Yep. I think that's the recipe. I was once asked to be on a board of uh, directors of a very large organization in Wisconsin I said, this friend of mine was the president of the board. And I said, Judy, why in the world do you want me? And in fact, I had, when I was a little kid, I had been thrown out of the organization because the uniforms didn't fit this girl who had matured early. The buttons didn't close across my top and refused uh, to wear it and got out the door I went. And I said, what in the world do you want me for? She said, you're the perfect board member. She said, you sit and listen. She said, I've watched you. I've watched you the last several years. She said, you sit and you listen. And you listen to everything everybody says. And we get to a point in the meeting and suddenly you speak up and you pull it all together. You extract the single, the threads that really are meaningful. 
you put them together and you give the sales pitch for whatever it is that we want the board to do. And she said, then they all vote yes. She said, that's why I want you. She said, don't do one single thing different than you've done all along. You know, just pay attention to the topics that you might not know about well. And don't tell them you got thrown out, you know, when you were nine years old or whatever it was. She said, but that's what I want you for. She said, I want you to sit there, listen, draw the important threads, pull them together and give. And she said, the sales pitches you give are very subtle. And she said, they're beautifully structured with all of the points and all of the topics and our goals and our dreams for the future. She said, just do that. She said, you'll be fine. And we went from not having the building that she wanted to build to getting the building with one meeting. And she said, see, see, that's what I wanted you before. She said, that's what I wanted you for. She said, if you never want to come to another meeting, don't. You're done. You've great service. Perfect. It's interesting because um, this isn't even something that I'm conscious of. If somebody asked me, how do I do it? I couldn't tell them. But this is what happens in every single session that I do with somebody where they just start talking. They will sometimes ramble all over the place and tell six different stories. And I'll summarize it for them in about 30 to 60 seconds. And they listen to it and they're like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. And then I said, based on everything you just said, X, Y, and Z, what can we do next to make a change? And they're like, it never even occurred to me, but this is exactly what I need to do next. And when people have said, they're like, I don't know how you can zero in so quickly on the one thing that's driving me crazy that I don't even know that I don't know. And I talk to you for 20 minutes and you find it. I couldn't tell them how I do that. It's just, it's something that's just natural. But now I have a better idea of where that came from. Because if somebody had asked me, I wouldn't have even known that that was really a skill that you had. Um, cause we've something we've never talked about before, but again, just through osmosis or genetics or who knows what it is, but that's, that's really interesting to me that, that ultimately that, uh, that ability is probably what uh, led to your success. And, um, conversely, it's probably what has led to mine. So that's interesting. Yep. Yep. I couldn't tell anybody either. Cannot tell you for a million years. I have no yeah, I, I couldn't teach it. Nope. I think it's one of those things that simply can't be taught. I don't, I, there are things that can't be taught and I think that's one of them. You know, I, I think you can be a wonderful uh, uh, cello teacher and you end up with Yo-Yo Ma. Uh, where, where do you go with Yo-Yo Ma? It's all in his head. It's all in his heart. And you may give them some suggestions about fingering or, you know, moving the cello an inch or two on either side on his shoulder. But uh, what do you do? It's, it's there. And that was, the, that was the whole thing that the band director realized. Just stand her up, click on the slide. And it just all comes out. Well, speaking of this idea of, uh, of things you can't be taught, now I want to transition a little bit to another question that's about the things that you can be taught, but lessons that you never really asked for. So the question is, what do you believe about yourself that has helped you endure difficult times? And what is the most difficult experience you remember that taught you this lesson? <sighs> that's a great question. Yeah, this is a heavy one. This is a really good one. Mostly I failed. I think most of those lessons, at least for a time, at least, you know, maturity and maybe maybe more examples of those lessons came along and I finally got, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think probably I'm, I'm flicking back to the lessons that come along with losing your parents like we did. Uh, there are lessons there, and particularly what I talked about my mother having said, uh, 
uh, about herself and about her life quietly to herself. And to, that was certainly a biggie. Uh, and then I think basically it actually does, as I think about it now, it does boil down to people and how you treat them and how are they valuable? Is there really a value to people? There certainly was for my father and there wasn't a lot for my mother. I'm probably being very unfair to her, but uh, I don't I don't think completely. Uh, one of the comments that she also made quite frequently was she was a teacher in the Chicago public schools in the immigrant schools. And she liked that. And I, I asked her once, I said, why do you, you know, why do you do that? You could teach other places. And she said, well, she said, you never have any trouble with the kids. I said, well, how could that be? She said, she said, you just drop a comment to the mother or the father and somehow and mysteriously, and she winked, said, it's all taken, it's all taken care of when the father comes home from work. She said, I never have problems with the kid twice. And I never have in all the years I taught. Uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting. That's what teaching meant to her was she could just, you know, collect her money and travel and buy beautiful clothes and so forth. Uh, so I think it was learning, learning that at very late in life to have a greater deal of empathy if, and if having had none to begin with or, or very little, having a great deal more uh, and just valuing different people for who they were. I grew up in a white bread, white everything suburb of, a, of the city of Milwaukee. And my whole life, we were, I said, well, we're, we, we're, we live in a cookie cutter world. That was my, we just were, and we still are. I have a group of girlfriends now. We're all in our late seventies. We all graduated from high school the same year together. And we're, we're still the group to look at but we're very different in what we've learned and what we do. Uh, and I think that was a great learning experience that took actually moving to the farm to get a lot of it, quite honestly, have different exposures. Uh, and I think, I think all of that was a big help, but it took some learning. It took some learning and some listening and some, you know, thinking about it. You know, is this right? Is this absolutely true? And of course it is. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.